Those are glorious words, aren't they? Speaking of our inheritance in our Lord Jesus Christ, our heavenly inheritance that we have in Him. We've read of this already, the fulfillment of it in 1 Peter 1, and now we're going to go back to the, uh, to the background of it, the Old Testament background, and that's going to be our sermon text. You see there our sermon text is Joshua 12 through 21. We won't read all of that. Uh, there are selections printed uh, here on the screen that we'll read. But we'll be looking at the, the, uh, the whole section there, chapters 12 through 21. So here are selections from that, beginning in Joshua 13, verses 1 through 7. Brothers and sisters, this is God's very word. Now Joshua was old, advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old, advanced in years, and there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains. All the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurites from Sihor, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron northward, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, and the Ekronites, also the Avites. From the south, all the land of the Canaanites and Merah that belongs to the Sidonians, as far as Ephek, to the border of the Amorites, the land of the Gebelites and all Lebanon toward the sunrise. From Baal, Gad, below Mount Hermon, as far as the entrance to Hamath, all the inhabitants of the mountains from Lebanon, as far as the, book, the brook of Misrapoth, and all the Sidonians. Them I will drive out from before the children of Israel. Only divide it by lot to Israel as an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now, therefore, divide this land as an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. And then over to Joshua 18. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there. And the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? Pick out from among you three men for each tribe, and I will send them. They shall rise and go through the land, survey it according to their inheritance, and come back to me. And they shall divide it into seven parts. Judah shall remain in their territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall remain in their territory on the north. You shall therefore survey the land in seven parts and bring the survey here to me that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord your God. But the Levites have no part among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their inheritance. And Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan on the east, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Then the men arose to go away, and Joshua charged those who went to survey the land, saying, Go, walk through the land, survey it, and come back to me, that I may cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went, passed through the land, and wrote the survey in a book in seven parts by cities. And they came to Joshua at the camp in Shiloh. Then Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua divided the land to the children of Israel according to their divisions. And then over to Joshua 20, verses 1 through 9. 
The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbor unintentionally, but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment, and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house, to the city from which he fled. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. And our final text, our final selection, Joshua 21, 43 through 45. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around, according to all that he had sworn to their fathers, and not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask his blessing on it. Lord, once again, we look to you. We humbly ask that you would once again speak to us by your word, by your Spirit's great work. Take this word and apply it to our hearts, we pray. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, these chapters, chapters 12 through 21, uh, in contrast with the chapters we've seen so far in Joshua, these are not the chapters that you, that you make the movie out of, are they? Right. The, the, the first 11 chapters of Joshua are full of drama, battles, and conflict, and spies. And, 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 and in comparison, chapters 12 through 21 uh, seem almost seem, seem dull. The bulk of, of what you would read if you were to read from chapter 12 all the way through 21 would be the, the description of the boundaries of different portions of Israel's inheritance. And the reason, it's, you know, the reason it's, it's challenging for us, doubly challenging for us in our culture and context is these are words we can't pronounce very well, and it's a place that we're not familiar with. We, we don't know what this is describing. Uh, it, it's hard for us to visualize it. So it's no surprise that it's a, a struggle to stay interested in these chapters because they read like a, like a property deed. And, and property deeds don't top the, the bestseller lists. But there is a situation where property deeds are riveting. And that's when it's your land. 
when you're buying it or when you're inheriting it, suddenly every word of that deed matters. It's all very relevant when it's, when it's describing your land for you. And that's what we are reading here. This isn't the, the drama of the conquest, no, but it's, it's vitally important to Israel because this is the description of their inheritance. This is their property. And, and think about how long Israel's waited for this. This is, the, this is the promise God made to Abraham way, way back in Genesis chapter 12, that he would bring him into a good land and that he'd give that land to his, uh, to his, his children after him. Think, think about it. Imagine you had um, a, a distant relative generations ago had this gorgeous piece of property and he bequeathed it to your family to be their inheritance forever, but it's, it's been years and years. It's been generations since, since your family's been able to be there. You've heard all about it. It's been promised to you. And then you know, maybe there's some, some legal battle to sort through, but finally it's sorted and it's yours. And, and you get to go and see it. And, 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 and what do you want to do? You're, you're going to go and you're going you're gonna to walk the land. You're going you're gonna to admire it. You're going to delight in all the details of it. And that's exactly what's going on here. The people are finally taking possession of the land. Every struggle they've endured has been, has been, has been leading to this, that they will be God's people in God's place in the promised land. The exodus, the wilderness, the conquest, everything's been tending towards this. And here, finally, it is, it's there. So they are recording every detail of the land. They are exalting in God's gift of this land to them. Well, very well, it's relevant then for Israel. What about, what about for us? Of course, these chapters would have been engaging and interesting to those actually inheriting this real estate. But what about for us? Well, these verses are a promise to us, loved ones, that as surely as God gave the people of Israel their earthly inheritance, seeing to its every detail, He will give us our heavenly inheritance. Just as every Israelite had a portion in the land of promise, every spiritual Israelite, every believer in Christ, has a portion in the heavenly land of promise. And as we see in the text, not a word that God promises ever fails. If that was true under the Old Covenant, with the typological, typological promised land, how much more is it true in the New Covenant with the reality of the promised heavenly inheritance? So even though these descriptions of this land are mostly obscure to us, we should see here this great encouragement. Not a word of all that God has promised us about our heavenly inheritance in Christ will fail to come true. Not a, not a word that He's promised. So with that in mind, let's, let's work through these chapters. We're just going to look at, at five headings to organize our thinking as we, as we work through this, this chunk together. So let's start in chapter 12 and our first heading, The End of Resistance. Chapter 12. So we didn't read chapter 12. Um, I encourage you to go and, and read this on your own, uh, on your own time. But here in chapter 12, we get a, we get a record, this final record of Israel's def- uh, uh, victories over the kings that they've been fighting against. The chapter is broken into two parts. The first half tells us of all the kings that Moses defeated. And then the second part tells us about the kings that were defeated under Joshua. There's just a, a couple under Moses on the, uh, on the far side of the Jordan. And then as the people come into the land under Joshua, uh, the, the, we, we get uh, all those kings listed out. 
And the narrator here takes pains to count out all the kings defeated under Joshua. He tells us there were 31 kings uh, that Joshua defeated. So between Moses and Joshua, 33 kings that have been overthrown. What's the point, right, of having this list here? Why, why, uh, what, what's the use of this text? Why, we already know that Moses defeated these kings. We read the stories. And, and to the reader reading through the book of Joshua, we, we've just read, you know, in dramatic detail, Joshua's uh, leading the people, God saving them and, and defeating these kings. We've read these stories. Why list them out? I think it might be a bit like listing your team's record at the end of an undefeated season. Right, you, you know you're undefeated. You don't need to print it, print the record on the trophies and the T-shirts and the, and, and the sport, uh, uh, the, uh, the raincoats. You, but, you, but you print it on them because you're celebrating the victories. Right? You know you've won, but, but you're celebrating it, you're remembering it, you're rejoicing in it. And that's what chapter 12 is. It's Israel's record of, of, of victory over every single enemy, every single king that they faced. It's a reminder to Israel that not one king they faced was mightier than their king, Yahweh, the Lord. So it's a record of God's commitment to them, to his, to his promise to them. Remember, if, you, if you, you might, back in Joshua chapter 1, as God calls Joshua there to lead this people into the promised land, what did he promise Joshua? Joshua 1.4 No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And we can, go, we can go back further. God promised the same thing through Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 4. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. And we've seen this in the chapters of Joshua that we've worked through already. All the amassed might of, of the kings of Canaan are nothing in the face of the Lord's wrath. God makes an utter end of all of them. And we, we do see in these chapters that we're looking at tonight, there's, there are still pockets here and there that haven't yet been uh, dispossessed and inherited and, and conquered. But all the kings of the land, it says, have been killed. The formal resistance is ended. Their victory is, is, is complete. And brothers and sisters, this is a sweet promise to us. About, about our future. Haven't we been hearing this in the sermons on Revelation that a day is coming when every last enemy of God's people will be laid in the dust in defeat? It's hard for us to imagine, isn't it? We look at the strength of the world, everything set against the church. Or we, we look at the strength of the powers of darkness or the strength of our indwelling sin, those sinful habits that we just can't seem to put to death. These things appear to be stronger than us, stronger than the church. We appear weak, but the good news is, the promise here for us is, the day is coming when, like Israel here, we will write the record of God's defeat of every one of our foes. Every spiritual enemy will be utterly defeated. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.25, For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Paul writes later in Romans as well, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. These are, these are, this is the, the same thing that Israel is delighting in here, but this has been, it's been translated into the, the great spiritual realities of, of our spiritual warfare. 
So when we're discouraged by what looks like defeat in the church, or we, you know, we see the church struggling or shrinking, or we feel frustrated but, but what, by what feels like a lack of progress in our Christian life, and we're, we're struggling against the same sins and doubts, or when we see the same patterns of sin you know, in our families that we've been wrestling with, we should remember the, the words of Joshua 12 this record of God's defeat over his enemies and take confidence. The end of the war is coming when, when we'll write the record of, of the defeat of all our enemies, all the spiritual forces set against us. Our king cannot be defeated. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be defeated. Those in Christ cannot be defeated, overcome by sin, overcome by the world. We will have the victory, brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 12. Chapters 13 to 21 then turn from the defeat of of Israel's enemies. They turn from this record celebrating God's victories over Israel's enemies. They turn from that to the inheritance then. And chapters 13 to 21 is all about the inheritance. And that's our second point. It's a detailed inheritance. As chapter 13 begins, we do learn that although the people have won the victory, it's been decisive over all these kings. There is still work to do. Um, and we, we did read this section earlier. The Philistines remain and five of their cities remain. God promises that he will be with Israel to, to drive them out. But the land is ready to be divided up and given to the tribes. So God instructs Joshua to give each tribe its, its portion. Reuben, the tribe of Reuben and Gad, half the tribe of Manasseh, they're given their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan. Chapter 13 goes on to list out the boundaries of each inheritance east of the Jordan for these tribes in, in detail. Chapter 14 then turns to the inheritance on the west side of the Jordan for the remaining nine tribes and the rest of the tribe of Manasseh. And it describes for us the, their, their inheritance. And uh, it, it talks in particular about Caleb, one of those two faithful spies way back in Numbers who was one of the only two remaining from that generation that came out of Egypt. He's given a special, a special inheritance. We get some detail on him in chapter 14. God being gracious to those who've been faithful to his covenant. Then chapter 15 describes Judah's inheritance in great detail. And then chapters 16 to 17 describe the inheritance that Ephraim and Manasseh uh, 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 receive. Then chapters 18 to 19 describe the inheritance for the remaining tribes. Benjamin, Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Naphtali, and Dan. And we get a special mention for Joshua and his inheritance also. And then finally, 21, chapter 21 gives us Levi's inheritance. The, the tribe of Levi doesn't get an inheritance like the other tribes do. The text tells us a couple of times that Levi's inheritance is the Lord and serving in the temple of the Lord. But nonetheless, in chapter 21, they do get some cities and, and pasture lands that are allotted to them. And that's what we read in chapter 21. And so what we see from chapters 13 through 21 is this great detail given to the inheritance of the various tribes. Because it's a real inheritance. This wasn't a vague thing for the Israelites. It was particular, detailed, personal, real, real land for them. Every family, every inheritance, every, every tribe had, had their own inheritance. 
And again, brothers and sisters, if, if this was true of the, the typological promised land, the, the, the promised land, the earthly one, foreshadowing the heavenly one, uh, is it not true of the greater spiritual uh, promised land that we have coming? Right? That we, we sometimes, I think, have this idea, at least I do, that the, the heavenly promised man, land, the new heavens and new earth, is, is vague and distant. It seems far away, like a kind of a general promise. We're not given much in the way of, of detail on it. But we can be sure, brothers and sisters, that it, that it is detailed, that it is personal and particular, that God knows every detail of the heavenly promised land, and, and that uh, he is preparing it for all his elect. Even as, even as God knew the details of the earthly inheritance, that every tribe, every family would inherit. Uh, he, is, he has planned out with precise detail our heavenly inheritance. This is what Christ promises in John 14, isn't it? I go to, to prepare a place for you. Why aren't we given much detail about this heavenly promised land? Well, we're, we, are, we are given some. We're, we're told it's going to be a land of perfect peace, perfect rest. We, we read of this in Revelation, all the beauty, the mystery of prophetic imagery there, but we get a, a picture of this place that's going to be uh, a place of pure delights, the most beautiful landscape, the, the most glorious part of this creation, you know, the most stunning sights and, and scenery of this creation will look like nothing in, the compar- in, in comparison with the, the glorious beauty of the new creation. But, but all the focus really in Scripture isn't on the details of the land itself, the, the heavenly promised land we'll receive. It's, it's really focused on the Lord himself. And we see this in this text here as, as, as the Lord speaks to um, the tribe of Levi in Joshua 18.33. It says this, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. That's Joshua 18.33. The Lord is the inheritance of, of the Levites. And, and in a very real sense, brothers and sisters, everyone is a Levite now. We are a kingdom of priests, the New Testament tells us. First Peter 2.5 You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Or Revelation 1.6 Jesus made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. All Christians are priests. We're all spiritual Levites. And so our inheritance, yes, there is, a, there is this heavenly land, a, a, a real new creation, a new heavens and new earth will inherit uh, a physical place where we will be. But the focus of it all is on the Lord Jesus. It's on God himself. We saw this in our study of John 14, right? We, we saw in John 14, Jesus speaks to his disciples of the wonderful heavenly inheritance in him. Uh, he, he speaks about a place that he's preparing for them. But then he says, the point is that you might be with me. This is uh, put so well in that wonderful hymn based on the letters of Samuel Rutherford. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gifted, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. And that's the inheritance. That's the, the heart of it that we're waiting for brothers and sisters. 
Now, even as we read here of Israel's inheriting this promised land, and even as we see in it the foreshadowing of our inheritance and the Lord himself at the heart of that inheritance, we, we see some warning signs. And that's what we see next in, as we look at chapter 18. Just a small section here, verses 1 through 3. We see a lack of persistence. And it's really a red flag for, uh, for us as we read about Israel here. Uh, there's an implied rebuke here. The, the people are already showing signs of getting lax, getting lazy. They're not completing the conquest. We see some warning signs. So let's, let's read verses 1 through 3 of, of chapter 18. Now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? There's a, there's a rebuke and a warning there. There's, there, there. there's sin happening. The people are neglecting their inheritance. They've waited for this. They've fought for it. And now that it's theirs, some of the tribes don't seem to care. They're, they're, they're shrugging at it. They're, they're, they're lacking zeal. They're lacking urgency. They, they remind me of Esau here a little bit. Back in Genesis 27, Esau trades his birthright for, for a bowl of stew. He's, he's so preoccupied with his just temporal comfort that he, he gives up uh, the, 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 the promised blessing. This was Esau's sin. He doesn't think much of what God promises to him doesn't think much of, of what God's inheritance is. He just wants his hunger satisfied. And that mattered more to him than, than the promises of God. And that's what the people are, are doing here, at least some of the tribes. And brothers and sisters, we should pay attention ourselves to this warning. Because we can have our, 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 our thirst uh, satisfied in the things of earth. Fall in love with this world, right? Like, like Demas, in love with this present world instead of longing, loving Christ's appearing. Are you homesick for heaven? Do you, do, you, do you feel like that's your inheritance? That's your homeland? That's where you want to be? Rather than desiring our inheritance here and now. It can't be both at the same time, brothers and sisters. You cannot love the world and the things in the world and at the same time love and long for your heavenly inheritance. It's, it's one or the other. Love for one drives out love for the other. So if we're, if, we're, if we're feeling like we are too full of the world's good things to long for our heavenly inheritance, we should pray that the Lord would give us a greater love for the things to come, the heavenly inheritance to come, which so far outshines the temporal one. I think of that illustration that is so powerful, C.S. Lewis's illustration, where he says we are far too easily pleased. We're like, we're like children playing in a muddy puddle, making mud pies, and, and refusing to get up and go to a holiday at the sea with their parents because they can't imagine what is, is so good about a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased with this inheritance here. Let us not be like these tribes, lacking persistence, lacking urgency for our heavenly home. We should, we should cultivate an ache and longing for our heavenly home. Set our minds, as Paul says, set our minds and hearts on things above where Christ is. 
Not, not that we neglect things on earth that need tending, and not that we don't enjoy the good gifts God gives us and, and the property, the, the blessings that He gives us. But we should, we should say with Paul, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. We should say with the author to the Hebrews, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, whose builder and maker is God. Are we seeking that city? Are you seeking it? Is your family seeking it? Is our church seeking it? So there's a warning here. Then in Joshua 20, let's, let's turn there. We see this. Um, something interesting happens here in Joshua 20. It's a little bit of a break with, with, the, with the rest of the chapters here. We've been talking about uh, the inheritance, but now this inheritance has been given. The narrator turns our attention to these cities of refuge. And this is our fourth heading that we'll consider here, a refuge from vengeance, chapter 20. These cities of refuge, what are they? They show up in, in uh, Exodus 21, right after God gives the Ten Commandments. He speaks of these cities of refuge. So they're, they're important. He brings them up again in Numbers and then again in Deuteronomy. So, so these, this isn't just um, you know, a side thing. This is an important thing. So as the people of Israel set their inheritance boundaries, the very next thing they're to do is establish cities of refuge. These were cities where if you, if you uh, were guilty of manslaughter, of an unintentional killing, you could flee there for safety from vengeance. What's God doing by establishing these cities? Well, he's, he's preserving justice. He's preserving mercy. Both these things. God wanted these cities throughout the land. The text tells us that they have uh, some in the east of the Jordan, some in the west, some in the north, some in the south, some in the middle. So they're accessible to everyone who needs them, everyone in the promised land, rich, poor, uh, whether you're a stranger or an Israelite, they should be accessible to you. I think, I think they're, they're mentioned again here, brothers and sisters, not just as, a, as the record of a historical fact that Israel obeyed God by establishing these cities of refuge, but also to show us that, that this is a place where, where God is going to uh, rule over his people by his law and that this land will be marked by justice and mercy. That the very geography and architecture of the land, the promised land, will be marked by cities of refuge. You can look at a city and say that city is a symbol of refuge from vengeance and a, and a symbol of, of redemption. This provision for cities of refuge is, uh, is placed here in this account because it represents something that's foundational to Israel about their whole inheritance. It's that they, they need a place. It's, it's a reminder to all Israelites. They need a place of refuge, shelter from wrath. They need, a, they need atonement. It's interesting to note that as anyone who runs to a city of refuge and, and is allowed to stay there had to stay in the city till the death of the high priest. It's as though it's, it's not until the high priest dies that they're that they're they're uh, uh, that that uh, they are cleared of the shedding of blood, even though they aren't guilty of it. That it, it, the land is not cleansed; their 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 sin is not completely cleansed until the high priest's death symbolically pays for the shedding of blood as a substitute, and then they're allowed to go free from the city of refuge without fear of vengeance. And so, it, God has, as it were, embedded into the promised land 
physically, these symbols of refuge and redemption and, and safety from vengeance. And God is saying, these things are at the heart of your inheritance, Israel. And brothers and sisters, there's a picture here, isn't there, of, of the gospel for us. Our high priest has died. We've been cleared of our sins. We've received refuge. We've been redeemed. And this underlies everything about our inheritance. We don't fear vengeance. We've, we've found the place of perfect refuge. That's what we see here. What's the conclusion to all this? After all these things have been completed, Israel's enemies destroyed, the land divided up, every tribe's received its inheritance, the cities of refuge have been established. What's the conclusion? What's the lesson for Israel? You know, the, the, what, how, how, how does God sum all this up? And it's this perfect fulfillment that we see in chapter 21, verses 43 through 45. A perfect fulfillment. Chapter 21 wraps up the whole section and tells us the point. It's always helpful, isn't it, when we get the inspired thesis statement for the passage. Here it is. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he'd sworn to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he'd sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel. All came to pass. Those are precious words. Not a word failed. Not a, not a word failed to accomplish what God had promised Israel about their inheritance. Think all the way back to Abraham. Think how many obstacles came that, that should have interrupted God's promises and stalled them and frustrated them. Think of all that Israel herself did to frustrate God's promises for them. All their sin and unbelief, beginning with Abraham himself, but all the way back in Genesis 12, God promises this land and it's finally come true. Every word God has said to his people has proved reliable. Their enemies are defeated. They have rest on every side. The land of promise is theirs. They're living in this land of shalom, of peace and wholeness under their God. God is faithful. I'm sure there are many generations of Israelites who doubted and questioned those promises God made to Abraham. Their fulfillment felt so long in coming, I'm sure, to the slaves in Egypt. Is God really going to bring us into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey? Maybe it's just a, 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 you know, a wish dream. As one commentator puts it, surely it seemed like God's promise had gotten too old and had expired. But there are no expiration dates, of course, on God's promises. And brothers and sisters, it's, it is now with us also, with the promises of God. We, we wonder, we question, we, we doubt at times. Can God really bring us into our heavenly inheritance? Can he overcome all the obstacles that seem to stand in the way of the fulfillment of his promises? Can he overcome the obstacles of my own sin and unbelief? Can he give us rest on every side from all his and our enemies? Even death itself, the final enemy. What's the answer? Well, the first part of the answer is yes, he already has fulfilled all his promises. 
We've already seen it, right? Listen to Romans 15.8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Paul says Christ is the confirmation of the promises of God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All the promises find their yes in him, as Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 1.20. So we see in the New Testament that it's done. Christ has come. The promises of God have been fulfilled perfectly. Not a word has failed. He sent his Son, worked our salvation. Christ has opened and entered the heavenly inheritance as our forerunner. And, and, and in a very real sense, spiritually, we are already there with him, as Colossians 3, 3 says. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. We've been raised with Christ in the heavenly places. We've already entered and begun to taste a foretaste of that heavenly promised land in Christ. So, so the first part of the answer, it, can God fulfill these promises? Well, he already has in Christ, whom he's raised from the dead. The promised land is ours. We have the Spirit as a down payment. But there's more. It's not just, yes, He has fulfilled His promises. The, the rest of the answer is, yes, He will completely, consummately fulfill all His promises. Not just partially, not just, not just here and now, but forever. Every word to its fullest possible extent. Brothers and sisters, not a word of all that God has promised you and me about our heavenly inheritance will fail, can fail, to come true. Not because we make sure it happens. Not because we're faithful, but because God makes it happen. Because He's faithful to His Word. He's sworn by Himself. He cannot, he cannot lie. God, by His grace, will be true to His promises and to us. Trust Him, brothers and sisters. His Word doesn't fail. Let's pray together.